0: There we go. You may be seated. Thank you, Praise Team, for leading us so well, as you always do. Before I get started, I want to thank my brother, Pastor Babatunde, for dressing me this morning. So I think he got tired of me wearing T-shirts and, and hoodies in the pulpit. So Brother Man went all the way back to Africa, all the way back to Nigeria, and got me this shirt. It's a nice shirt, though, so... Thank you, brother, Pastor Babatune. Uh, Thank you guys for praying for me. Some of you may have known that uh, during travels on vacation with my beautiful wife of 18 years now, uh, I picked up a little COVID, but I'm completely healed, two negative tests in a row. But there's this nagging cough that will not leave me. So my wife commanded me to bring water up here. And because I'm not a fool, I listened to my wife. And so I beg your your patience. If I start coughing and start drinking, you'll know why. All right. So with that, uh, again, welcome to Anacostia River Church. And let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll jump right into it. Lord God, we do indeed thank you for this day that you've given us. I thank you for each person represented here. I thank you for the songs that we've been singing. Father, we thank you for the praises that have gone up. We thank you for the prayers that have gone up. And now, Lord God, as we turn to your word, we ask that you will speak to us through your word, that we will leave this place differently than how we came in, that we will be convicted, not by anything that I say, Father, but by what we find on the pages of life. We ask this in your son's name, I do pray. Amen. (laughs) So you guys will remember that for the past few weeks, we've been going through a series on Ephesians, and our brother Matt has been doing a fantastic job of walking us verse by verse through that wonderful book we decided to give him a break this morning. And so what we're going to do is return to our What Does the Bible Say series. And so this is a series that the pastors thought of, I think it was maybe October or November of last year, that throughout the year, we wanted to come and bring to you guys some basics of the faith, right? So in addition to renewing ourselves with our covenant and our five M's, we also wanted to renew ourselves by just reviewing some of the basics of the faith that we want to make sure that we all have, making sure we're coming off from the same playbook. So if you remember a few months ago, we had a, a pastor from Florida, part of the Creek Collective who came and he preached to us the first sermon in that series on what the Bible is, the doctrine of the Bible. And then I think it was three weeks ago, our own brother Colin came, stood right here, opened God's word and taught us about God, who God is. And So he walked us through the doctrine of God and some of the attributes of God. And now this morning, the task I have before us is to talk about the doctrine of man. And one thing I want you guys to realize is that the way that we've gone through this series, starting with the Bible, then God, and then man is not by accident. It's very strategic. So we start with the Bible. We establish the Bible as God's revealed word to us. And we do that because if we can all agree that what we find in the Bible is divine truth, then whatever we choose to teach or preach about that's in the Bible makes it so much easier because we don't have to keep arguing and wondering, well, is that true or can I believe that or is that accurate? If we can identify the Bible as the baseline of truth from God himself, then we're in the game. And then number two, we preach about God because in the Bible, God's the first person that we ever meet. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so if God himself, through his word, starts with God, then we're no fools. It makes sense that after the Bible sermon, we come with the God sermon. But then there's another reason. Because in the Bible, in Genesis 1-1, right in that verse, we're told that God creates all things. And so if we want to know about anything else in the Bible, why it's there, why it exists, the nature of that thing, then we have to start with God because everything else that's ever been created derives its meaning from God. And so that's why we start with God. And then we go to man. And we go to man because as we'll see today, I hope through God's word, is that man is the crown jewel of everything that God has created. So we start with God. I'm sorry, we start with the Bible. We go to God. And now this morning, we talk about man. So why, excuse me, so we start with the Bible, we go to God and then we go to man. And we're gonna do that by asking this question that you see right there in your bulletins, what is man? A very simple question, but a very profound question. Hear this from R.C. Sproul who once said about the importance of asking and answering this question. How we answer the question, what is man? will have a profound impact on how we live. It's been said by one theologian that how human beings understand their own existence determines how they think, how they behave, and the type of culture that they produce. So if Sproul is right, then the way that we approach this question, what is man, is one of the most important questions that we will ever ask because it determines so much about our lives. How we answer this question is not just a theological exercise where we only engage our minds. How we answer this question has real consequences for how we live. Think of the slave master that has the Bible in one hand and chains and whips in the other. And think about how he answers this question one way for himself and another way for the African. That The way he, he goes through that logic has real devastating consequences that were felt then and can still be felt now. Or think about apartheid in South Africa, or Nazi Germany when millions of Jews were killed. Or think about how many of the debates that we have today, abortion, gender identity, unjust treatment of black and brown folks, human trafficking, and the list goes on and on and on. And at the root of all these issues is this question, what is man and how should I treat him? So a misstep in how we answer this question and how we decide who to apply it to can have disastrous consequences. History has proven this to be true. But on the flip side of that, if I get this right, if I go to God's word and let God's word inform my heart and my mind on who God is and how I should treat man, then people start putting up hospitals to save lives. People start abolitionist movements to free slaves instead of enslaving slaves. Churches form PSA groups, right? So if we get this thing right, we don't have to take lessons from history. We can take lessons from God and we can flip the script on that, all right? So this is so much more than an exercise in the mind. What we talk about today has real consequences. There's much that depends on how we answer this question. So with all that in mind and understanding how important this question is and knowing that I have a huge task this morning, like any halfway decent preacher would do, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to take the answer right from God's word and right from Colossians 1. And we're going to pay special attention to what we find in Colossians 1, verse 16. And we're going to use that verse to answer the question, what is man? And we're going to pay special attention to that verse and what it says to us. And from that one verse, we're going to see two things, two simple statements that help us understand the nature of all created things. So, number one, we're going to see that all things were created through Jesus. And number two, we're going to see that all things were created for Jesus. And so these two aspects of all created things are going to help us answer the question, what is man? Because they are true about every human being that has ever lived. Starting with Adam and Eve in the garden, all the way down to every person in this room today, those two things are true. Those two aspects of our existence are at the essence of what it is to be a human being. These two facts, created through Jesus and created for Jesus, are universally true about every human being on the planet. As a matter of fact, you've never met a human being where these two aspects of their very existence are not true. And so, because these two things are so foundational, this is where we're going to spend our time today. So, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. If you don't, I think there may be people who have some. Um, So if you raise your hand and if you need a Bible, there are people who will, looks like Jada, I can't see who that is, I'm half blind. Is that Grace? Brittany, why? Hey, Brittany. So we got Jada, we got Brittany, why? Thank you, Essie. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and they'll bring it to you. And then when you get that, go ahead and open the word, God's word to Colossians chapter one. So, we're going to pay attention, like I said, to verse 16. But before we get there, just a, a quick recap of this particular uh, book of the Bible. It was written to a church, the Colossians. This is actually not one of the places where Paul himself went on his missionary journeys. So you see that around verse seven, um, where we're told that Epaphras is the one that actually brought them the word. But he starts this particular uh, section of God's word in typical fashion. So, in verses one and two, We get that standard apostolic greeting. And then in verses 3 through 14, we actually see two prayers. So in verse 3, Paul lets them know that once he heard about their conversion to Christ, he actually thanks God for them. So that first prayer we see right there in verse 3 is a prayer of thanksgiving. And then as you keep going down in verse 9, we actually now have a prayer of petition where Paul is going before the sovereign God of the universe to make requests on their behalf. And then after Paul gets off his knees in verse 14, as we enter into verse 15 through 20, we now see what we call Christology, or these statements about Jesus that tell us who he is and what he's about. And you see that right there in verse 15, he starts, he is. So that's the first Christological statement that we see in this chapter. And what we're gonna do is pick it up on the second one. So in verse 16 of chapter one of Colossians, Paul writes these words, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so you'll see right there that he starts this particular verse simple enough with one Christological statement, for by him, all things were created. And to make sure that they don't get this confused, he then gives them a representative sample so that they understand what exactly he means by all things. And you'll see it right there. Visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. So basically, Paul is letting him know that he really does mean all things. But in addition to that, before he goes on to verse 17 to tell them that all things are held together by Christ, he actually gives them a little bit more meaning On what it means to be created by Jesus and you see that right there in the second half of the verse and Paul tells him that to be created by Jesus means these two things all things were created through him and all things were created by him and so that's what it means to be created for by Jesus rather so what was Jesus's purpose in creation Well, one, we have to understand that when Jesus says, or when Paul says that that we're all created by Jesus, it's a package deal. It includes both of these things. So whenever we talk about Jesus creating, it's not only the act of creation itself, but it also includes the purpose that Jesus created that thing. There are two things, and we cannot separate it. So whenever we see something that's been created, we should immediately ask, what is the purpose that Jesus had in creating that thing? It's a package deal, and it's very important that we understand that whenever we talk about creation. And so hear this from Proverbs sixteen four. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So as God, Jesus in the flesh, he has the power to assign purpose to everything that he makes, as everything in creation, including us. So then the next question is, well, what was Jesus' purpose in creation? Hear this from Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, where Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without his chiefs. So Paul is saying that one of the purposes Jesus has in creating all things is to make God visible, to show forth his invisible attributes. Namely, as he says right there, pointing to the fact that he exists, that God is there and that he is real and that he has eternal power. Or hear this from Psalm 19 verses 1 to 4, where David says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. I'm sorry, through the end of the world. So here in Psalm, David used poetry to say the same thing that Paul says in Roman, that creation speaks. And David says, not only does it speak, but it never shuts up. He said, it speaks all the time, day and night. It speaks everywhere. So that means that every voice on this planet has heard from God simply by seeing creation. And both what we see in Psalm and what we see in Romans say the same thing. Everyone's heard it. Nobody is without excuse. No one in their right mind could stand here today and say there is no God. That's impossible. Because in creating the universe, Jesus in creation gave it a purpose to display his glory, that we would see his attributes, namely that he is and that he has eternal power. So that's one thing that everything in creation shares, whether it's the plants, whether it's the trees, the moon, the stars, or whether it's us, we all exist for this one common purpose of making God known not only making him known, but making him known in a great way to make sure that people know that the God we serve is glorious. So this is one common purpose that we have. And Paul says that to be created for Jesus in Colossians 1.16 includes this purpose of making him known. So what Colossians 1.16 shows us at a macro level that all things exist to show forth God what Tano read for us early in Genesis 1 shows us the detailed level of how God created and the specific purposes that he gives. So earlier when Tano read Genesis 1, we saw how Jesus, God through Jesus, how he made the stars differently than how he made fish and how he made fish differently than how he made the beast of the air or in the land and how he made those differently than how he made man. And it's in the uniqueness of how God created man Differently than the plants, and differently from the birds, and differently from the fish, that we can answer this question what is man? So, if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and turn back to what Tano read for us earlier in Genesis chapter one. And as we step through that, we're not going to read it again, but as we step through that, there are a few things that I want us to notice to help us answer this question of what is man. So, one, let's look at how God reveals his purposes for creating. And when we do that, when we look at these first 27 verses, we're going to see that there are three major ways that in creation at this detailed level that God shares with us why he creates things. That first one I call is the explicit method. And we see that in how God creates the sun. So if we look at uh, Genesis 1, verse 14 through 16, we read this. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be signs and for seasons, and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night in the stars. So we don't have to guess why God made the sun. We know exactly why he made the sun, to separate the day from the night, to be used for times and seasons and all these other things. So God was explicit or forthright and straightforward in letting us know why he creates the sun. The other way that God reveals his purposes is through this phrase, according to their kind, or according to its kind. And depending on the translation of the Bible you have, you'll see that this is mentioned 10 or 11 different times. So look at how God creates fruits and vegetables in verses 11 and 12. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plant yielding seed, seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So God being God and being able to create whatever he wants, he could have given us just kale as our only vegetable or he could have given us apples as our only fruit. But instead, God has given us diversity. We have different kinds of vegetables, huh? We have different kinds of fruit. And in that, in this diversity, we see that an apple is not an orange, amen? Matter of fact, an apple makes a horrible orange because that's not why it was created. An apple was created to be an apple and do apple things, right? And in the same way, <laughs> y'all crazy. Um, so, when God creates something according to its kind, what he is telling us through that phrase is that he distinct from the rest of creation. And in that distinctness, we actually see that thing's purpose. So, thank God for apples because I love them joints, right? Um, so, when God creates man, Notice now that he doesn't use the explicit method. He doesn't say we are creating man for this purpose in the way that he did the son, nor does he say according to his kind. So we don't see that man is created according to his kind like he does with kale, or like he does with apples. Instead, when we look at verses 26 and 27, God says that man's purpose is revealed in the fact that he was made in God's image and in his likeness. So, remember that again, when God creates, it's a double-edged sword. It's two sides of a coin. So, one is the actual act of creation, right? That's what it is to be created through Jesus. And it's also the purpose. That's what it means to be created for Jesus. So, in God communicating to us that we are made in his image, he is creating both the what I am and the why I am. I was created in his image for the explicit purpose of showing forth who he is in the world. So that in the image of God or in the Latin phrase the imago Dei tells me what I am and it tells me why I am. Listen to how one theologian defines what it means to be created in the image of God. In fact, as we read the rest of scripture, we realize that a full understanding of man's likeness to God would require a full understanding of who God is. In his being and in his actions, and a full understanding of who man is and what he does. The more we know about God, and the more the similarities we will recognize, the more fully we will understand what scripture means when it says that man is in the image of God. The expression refers to every way in which man is like God. So you'll have a lot of people, when they want to describe what the image of God is, they usually give you three things, that we're moral creatures, we can think, and maybe they'll throw in another one. And all those are included in that. But what this particular theologian says, which I really, really like, don't limit it to that. Don't try to fit it just in that box. When we read God's word, and as we listen to our brother Colin, who came and told us about God and all his attributes, as we continue to study God's word, every time we see God doing something, And in God's word, when we see man doing that same thing, you can check the box that's included in being created in the image of God. So when we see God loving, when we see God uh, forgiving, when we see God acting justly in the world and we're told in God's word that we're to do the same, then each one of those would get a check for being created in the image of God. And so my recommendation to you based on what I see in scripture and based on that quote as well is let's not have a narrow view of what it means to be in the image of God. Let's let God's word in its fullness explain to us what that means. So what he's doing right now is it's a summary of who I am and why I am. And as we continue to learn about God by his grace through his word, as we continue to learn about ourselves by his grace through his word, and when we see things that align, check it off. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. Amen? Amen. So out of all creation, it's important to realize when we read Genesis 1 that only man is created in God's image after his likeness. Man has a distinct honor and ability by his very design, by God's grace, to declare God's glory in ways that other creation cannot. H. B. Charles once said that the glory of God is not an attribute, but the sum total of his attributes. So all of creation has, a, again, that common purpose of making God known, but only man is made in his image. So think about this. A plant, as wonderful as plants are, can never show that God is a forgiving God. Fish, as wonderful as fish are, especially when they're fried, in salt and pepper, on my plate from Busboy and is that catfish, mwah, it's wonderful. But that fried catfish on my plate will never be able to show the world that God is a gracious God. As good as it tastes, it'll never be able to show that. Only man created in God's image after his likeness is able to display God's character to the world in ways that the rest of creation cannot. Listen to this from Psalm 106 verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praises? So as God's image bearers, we can never fully show the glory of God or declare all his praise. As Psalms 145, three says, his greatness is unsearchable. We can't begin to understand all of God or all that He is, but that's okay. Our assignment given by God as we are created in His image is to use all that we have to declare as much as we're able to this watching world what He is like. So when someone leaves our presence, what they should be thinking to themselves is hmm, so that's what God's like. If we're doing our job, then we should smell like God. We should be reflecting God to every single person that we meet. Psalm 104, 33 through 35 says this, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. So as long as I live, as long as I have being, we are to reflect God's glory. But there's more. Notice that in verse 26, God is actually talking about the blueprint. So in verse 26, when we look at this, we'll see, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are having this triune divine design session. And coming out of that session, they agree to let us make man in our image. But it's not until verse 27 that they actually do the making. And we see that both man and woman are created in his image. So what I want to do is I want to flip over to Genesis 2, and I want to see exactly how God made us in his image. I want to look at the kind of stuff that we're made of. And so when you turn the page, depending on your Bible, and you look at Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 7, you'll find these words. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living man creature. From this one verse, we see that God has given us a physical body and a non-physical soul, sometimes called spirit. And you'll see that when God first made man, he made him from the dust of the earth. So God made a full-grown Adam, right? He had biceps like Kaleishi, abs like Glenn, gray hair like me. I mean, the man was brilliant. He was beautiful. But notice That even though he was a fully formed man, he was not a living creature until God breathed in him the breath of life. And so God has created us both with a physical body and a non-physical soul. Ecclesiastes 11.5 says this, As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So I'll be the first to say, I have no idea how my body contains my spirit. I do not know if my spirit is in my toes. I do not know if it's in my arm. I do not know if it's in my hand. Peter, if I lose a toe, am I losing some spirit? I have no idea. But that's okay. So Ecclesiastes is saying, even through the birthing process, the way the spirit comes into the womb, it is a mystery. And it's okay that it's a mystery. We don't have to understand exactly how it works to know that we have it. Amen? Listen to this from Zachariah chapter 12, verse 1, where we find these words, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So again, I don't have to know how it works, but God's word, as we read it, confirms that we are both physical and non-physical. We are both body and we are both soul. And so I don't have to know exactly how it works, but I do know that there's a vital relationship between my body and my spirit. From uh, Genesis chapter two, verse seven, again we see that there was no life in Adam until he had his spirit. Or how about this from James two, verse twenty-six: For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so we normally jump over that first part and jump right to the part about faith and works. And faith and works, they go together, but the same way that the body and spirit goes together. Amen? So from James, if I do not have my spirit, I do not have life. So again, we don't know exactly how it all works, but my body and spirit are intertwined in ways that God has designed. And it's okay that I don't understand exactly how it works, as long as I understand how I'm made. So I'm made body, and I'm made spirit. Perfect example of how I don't understand how this works. So right now I'm speaking to you and I know that I'm using my mouth. I know that I'm using my tongue. I'm hoping I'm using my brain, but what part does my spirit play in all this? I have no idea, but I know that it does because I know that my spirit gives life to my body. So if my spirit wasn't here, I'd be a corpse. amen? So my spirit right now is involved in how I'm talking to you. And the same is true for everything we do with our bodies. Our spirit is actively working in everything that my body does. We cannot separate the two. So we can talk about them as being different. I know my hand is not my spirit. I know my nose is not my spirit, but we can never separate the two. Because as soon as we do that, we're talking about a dead man, amen? So whenever we talk about a human being, whenever we talk about a person, we should always be thinking they are body and they are soul, and that is by God's design. In both of them, who are made in his image with the explicit purpose of showing who God is. So why is this important? What is man? Man is created in the image of God as a unified body and spirit for the specific purpose of showing what God is like. This is who we are. And this is important for many reasons, but I just wanna give us three. The first is, I'm created. Amen, hallelujah praise the Lord. I did not create myself. I did not evolve from monkeys. The universe didn't create me. I didn't just all of a sudden appear. I was created by an all-wise, sovereign God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so understanding this creature-creator relationship should also help me understand and accept the fact that human beings are not the end-all, be-all. We are not all that there is. We are created beings. And that should help me understand that my ultimate fulfillment is not my happiness, It's not the accumulation of wealth, It's not marrying my high school sweetheart, although all those things are wonderful, but it should never be able to define who I am at the core. At the core of who I am, when I define myself, should ultimately be me being made in the image of God and me living out as my creator has designed me. Number two, a wise person once said that if you don't know the purpose of a thing, you will misuse or abuse that thing. I give you a perfect example from my youth. So I was about 11 or 12 going through puberty. So, you know, hair is coming out of my face, smelling a little bit. And I have acne, pimples all over my face. One day I'm watching TV and I see a commercial for Noxzema. And all I remember from this commercial is someone had pimples, they used Noxzema, they didn't have pimples anymore. So I convinced my parents that my life could not go on until I had Noxzema. So they brought me this little, little, little tub of, of blue magic, I open it up, I'm very excited, I don't even read the direction, I just start putting it on. Christian, I'm taking this stuff, I'm throwing it on my face, I'm rubbing it hard so it really gets into my skin. But it never worked. I had pimples for years after that, so I stopped using it. It wasn't until years later somebody told me that Noxema is a cleanser. So I read the label. The label says gently apply to your face and thoroughly rinse. Here I am using this little blue thing of magic like a moisturizer, rubbing it into my skin, walking out shiny, wondering why, because I was using it the wrong way. I never understood what the purpose of Noxema was. So every time I go to a store now and I see it, I I freak out, I just start running. Because I just have all these horrible memories of it. But I didn't know what it was. I did not understand the purpose of Noxzema. So I misused Noxzema and just walked out there shiny with pimples. Same thing for our humanity. If we do not know the purpose of our existence, we will abuse the purpose of our existence. If I do not know that my body and soul together were created to reflect God's glory, I have zero chance of ever ever living out why I was created. So Colossians 1.16 says that Jesus created me for a purpose, and I need to know what that purpose is if I ever want to achieve that purpose. Amen? And then lastly, number three, the reason why I think it's important for us to understand from God's word what man is, is because we have to recognize the importance of both the body and the soul together were made to image God. Both together are involved in the mission of showing God to the world. And if I don't get this quite right, I'm going to be lopsided, caring for one but not the other. give you a perfect example from my life. So my Uncle Greg, I've talked to some of you about him. Uh, He's a uh, a Vietnam vet, former Black Panther. He's now a a pastor out in Detroit and has been for well over 20 years. Very much the spiritual father in my life. So he used to take me on these mission trips to Kenya. We used to stay up late drinking tea and, and just talking life. And then one time we're out in Kenya and he tells me this story about the church he grew up in during the civil rights movement, where his father, my grandfather was for leadership. And one day he sat my father, I'm sorry, my grandfather down and he asked him the question, why are you guys not involved in the movement? Like, why are you not involved in the struggle? And my grandfather's response to him was, we were just trying to save souls. So, family, saving souls is important. It's, like, really important. My prayer for us is that we are always known as a church that preaches and teaches and shares the gospel and praying to God that he would bring people to faith. Amen? Sharing the gospel and seeing souls saved is the main thing, but it's not the only important thing that God has required of us. Hear this from Jesus himself in Matthew 25, verses 34 Through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Verse 36. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you, verse 39? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, talking about Jesus, will answer them, surely I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus rightly assumes that people who are made in his image will care after their neighbor's physical condition who are also made in their image. So this is why Jesus can say that when we feed the hungry, when we clothe the naked, when we visit people in prison, that we do it to him because we do it to his image bearers. And that link between Jesus and his image bearers is so strong that at the end of these verses, he is able to say that when you feed somebody, you're doing it to me. When you close somebody, you're doing it to me. When you visit somebody in prison, you're actually visiting me. That link, that image bearing link, we dare not take for granted. We dare not do that. So what Jesus is showing us here is that the image in other people should be taken care of. We want to make sure that the image we see in other people, that we allow it to flourish in every way possible. So we're given a body, and we're given a soul, and we're given those from God himself. So let's make sure that we minister to both body and soul for ourselves and also for our neighbors. Amen? so everything we've been talking about so far is from the view of creation, right? So we've been in Genesis 1, we've been in Genesis 2, and we're able to see God's original design for man and how he made him. But if you're a Bible scholar, even if you're not a Bible scholar, you know that if you turn one page, them jokers done messed it up for everybody. They got in their mind that even though they are creatures, they could be really, really, really like the creator, and they disobeyed God. But the Bible tells us that they ate from the tree that God forbid. And then I think it's in Romans where it says that in Adam, all men fell. And so the original sin and the impact of that sin has now gone throughout the world. So that's why if we go outside right now, if we turn on the news, we see nothing but chaos. That is sin in the world. And so then the question becomes, with sin in the world, and more importantly, with sin in me, and I hate to tell you, actually, I'm glad to tell you, we're sending you, what happens to that image? Is that image gone? Is it somehow destroyed? So listen to this from Genesis 9, uh, where God is giving instructions to Noah and his sons after the flood. Um, and so he tells them that they can eat meat, which is the first time we see that in Scripture. Uh, <laughs> amen for meat. <laughs> Uh, He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, which is something that he originally told Adam and Eve as well. And then in Genesis 9, 5 through 6, God tells Noah and his sons these words. In your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. So even after the fall, even with sin in the world, and I assure you, Noah was not a sinless man. And even with that sin, God still recognizes the image that he placed on man. So much so that he uses the image of God as a reason why someone should not murder. So an offense against an image bearer is an offense against God himself. Or what about James chapter three, verses nine through 10, where James says, with it, talking about the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth, blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be. So, again, James is talking about how we use our mouths and sometimes we use it to praise God and then other times we use it to curse man. And James concludes that these things should not be. But why shouldn't they be? Why is cursing man wrong? James tells us it's wrong because man is made in the likeness of God. So the fact that sin is in the world and the fact that sin is in us does not remove the image of God in us. That image is still intact. And so what we see from these verses, even after the fall, is that there is great human dignity as a result of being made in the image of God. So think about this verses in Genesis 9 and God saying not to murder because we're in his image and this verse in James where James says that we should not even talk badly about about men. Think about this as a range of things that are off limits in how we treat man. God uses two extreme poles to let us know that as a result of being made in the image of God, any unjust treatment on one of his image bearers is off the table. Any unjust treatment from something as significant as killing to something as light that we may think is light as talking poorly about someone. Those two ends and everything in between is off the table because we still have the image of God, even though sin is in our lives. So it's important that we recognize the image that we all share. And it's important to realize that the image is on all men, not just Christians. It's on Jews, Christians, Muslims, agnostics. Same-sex attracted, gender confused, white folk, black folk, Republicans, Democrats, blind, deaf, old, young, the unborn, they all have the image of God stamped on them. So if you're a created human, which is every human, then you bear God's image even after the fall. So we don't get to pick and choose who we decide to see as image bearers. We're all image bearers. Which means we don't get to pick and choose who we're going to treat with dignity and who we're not. All persons have dignity. All persons are made in the image of God. Amen? Amen. So sin may not destroy this image, but it does distort this image. So remember, I said that when God creates, he creates with a double edged sword. He does the actual act of creating, and he also gives us the purpose in what he creates. So sin, in its disastrous impact that it has on, on my life, it doesn't take away the who I am, but it does impact my ability to live out the why I am. So sin, in its devastating impact, does not allow me to fulfill my assigned mission of showing forth God's character in a way that God accepts. So if you go back to Colossians and you look at verse 21, We're going to find these words. And you, talking about the Colossians, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is Paul's way of summarizing the impact of sin. So he says that sin alienates or separates us from a holy God. In the same way that my body without the spirit is dead, God says that I am dead without him. This is why Ephesians 2 says we are dead in trespasses and sins. Sin kills my relationship with God. Sin makes me an enemy of God, but that's not it. Sin has made my mind hostile to God. The same God that made my mind in my mind, I now want to curse. I'm no longer thinking wonderful, beautiful thoughts about God in my mind because of sin or his image bearers, but it gets worse. Finally, Instead of using my body and soul to display God's character, Paul says, I use both of them to do evil deeds. And again, all we have to do is turn on the news. All we have to do is walk out of this room. All we have to do is look in our own hearts to know that this is true. Sinful people engage in sinful deeds. It corrupts us to the core, but it gets worse Because because of sin, the Bible says that I deserve God's righteous wrath and eternity in hell. But thank God for verse 22, because that's the hope. This is what we read, and we say that this is the good news, or what Christians say, this is the gospel. So verse 22 says this, If indeed you continue, no, that's 23, 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So this is Paul's way of talking about the cross. Jesus being God in the flesh lived a perfect life. He's the only person to ever walk this earth that was actually sinless. He kept God's law perfectly. So what Romans 3:23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, where you and I have fallen short because of our sin. Jesus did not because he was actually righteous. He was actually perfect. But the Bible says he went to the cross and died. But why did he do that? He went to the cross in our place to die the death that we could never die. Because he was sinless, God actually accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. So the Bible says that he was crucified, and then three days later, he was resurrected from the grave, which proves that God actually accepted his sacrifice. So today, if you're here, if you're not a Christian, if if you are still in verse 21, if you are alienated from God, if you are hostile in mind toward God, and if you're still engaged in evil deeds, we would ask that you would stop that. We would ask you to repent, which is to turn from your sins and to turn to Christ. Believing that what Christ did on the cross in our place is enough for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's enough, as verse 22 says, to reconcile us back to God. So in verse 21, we're alienated. But through Christ, in verse 22, we're reconciled. And so, again, the sin in our life, it does not destroy our image, but it does distort it. I am no longer able to live it out. And because of that, I'm separated from God. And so before you leave here today, my prayer is that you will repent of your sin and you will put your faith in Christ. And then and only then the Bible says that we have life in Christ. So before, when I was not able to actually image him effectively because of the sin in my life, even though it was hard, I'm now given life. I'm given the Holy Spirit to help me do that very thing that I was created to do. So what is man? Man is created in the image of God as a unified body and spirit for the specific purpose of showing the world what God is like. Since God has given us a purpose, family, let's make sure we live that purpose. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word this morning, for it is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for how, in your word, we find the very things we need to know for our souls. We find your truth. We find you speaking to us. Father, we thank you for how we read in Colossians and in Genesis and throughout your entire word that we are creatures created by a sovereign, all-wise, all-powerful God who has given us a purpose of imaging him, of showing him, reflecting and mirroring his very character to a dying world. Lord God, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that resides inside of us, that we would be able to fight sin, be able to put off the old man and put on the new man, so that people may see our good works and glorify our God who is in heaven. In your son's name I do pray. Amen.